Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. In today's episode, if you can concede that it's fine to have 3,000 people in one venue enjoying sport and enjoying alcohol, then you've got to turn around and say, what's what's wrong with soft, soft play? What's wrong with rugby talks? I think the issue is, do we want to try and get events back in Scotland? Northern Ireland could well be on the edge of a tinderbox or at the edge of a precipice back into violence. If we end up with a kind of brave heart approach to teaching history in the schools, I think that would be to the concern of, of everyone, not just people from my political persuasion. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor and welcome to the latest edition of my Herald podcast. Now, it's all about global politics this week. President Biden joins Boris Johnson and fellow leaders for the G7 in Cornwall. Straight out of an episode of Yes Minister, we have the Euro sausage, a row over the rules governing shipments from Britain to Northern Ireland. But first, international sport. The Euro 2020 football tournament kicks off a year late. But so what? Scotland's waited not one but 23 years to take part in a major tournament. And so to celebrate, we have the fan zone on Glasgow Green with social distancing, of course, of course. The organisers are preparing, well, they're preparing for the unexpected. I love the comment from the event's head of security who said, we fully appreciate that Scotland may score. Yeah, go Scotland. And this, he said, might result in spontaneous euphoria, in which case event staff would engage and explain the rules to the jubilant Tartan army. Loads of luck, pals. Loads of luck. Now, to my panel in a moment, but firstly, David Ball of the Herald political team. David, there's been a there's been a fair old stushy, it's fair to say, over the fan zone, hasn't there? Yeah, obviously, there's a lot of excitement in the city that not only is Scotland taking part in this tournament after so long, but Glasgow is a host city. Yeah. Um, but given that um, a lot of the pubs and restaurants have been in such tough restrictions in Glasgow for, for so long, there's there's a, quite a lot of anger at this fan zone, which has a yeah. 3,000 capacity, up to 6,000 people a day. And... The only requirement people have is social distancing and masks. There's no requirement to sort of take a, a test. So it has angered people and other businesses who are unable to open fully yet. Sort of the wedding industry and the soft play areas are also believing that they're getting special treatment above them. Yeah, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon was asked about it in, in, in questions to the First Minister. And she, she said, yeah, that there can be anomalies. But, but you know, she was, she was adamant that, that, that she, she was arguing that, that this one met the rules. Now, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined now by a top team of MSPs, Fiona Hislop from the SNP. Welcome, Craig Hoy from the Tories, a new boy, and Alex Cole-Hamilton from the Liberal Democrats. Alex, are you, are you fretting? you fretting about the fan zone? Well, I think coming as this does, Brian, the week that parents and grandparents were told that they cannot attend nursery school graduations, even in an outdoor context, it is being greeted, I think, by some people with baffled amazement that we're still proceeding with allowing 3,000 fans into a zone where booze will be available. Um, and that spontaneous euphoria, we hope, will be on tap as well. We, we um, hope there's a bit of spontaneous euphoria, or, or euphoria spontaneous or otherwise. Yeah. Exactly. But, but none of we can't ascertain their COVID status because we're not planning to test them. Now, that's a deep concern. Now, I think the horse has probably bolted on this. I don't think we could institute testing now to make sure that everybody was uh, COVID-free before entering the zone. But what we, we can do two things, and, and that's what the Liberal Democrats do. Firstly, we have the details of all of the fans that are registered to come 
to the zone and to Hamden, I would send them today, first class putters, a lateral flow COVID test, because uh -huh. very well to say to take a COVID test, but a lot of people just never get around to ordering them or they don't know how to order them. It appears on their doormat today or tomorrow, or tomorrow the next day, they can take them. The second thing I'd do is give all security guards at the entrance to each zone uh, a temperature gun, just to check um, to a basic symptomatic temperature gun to make sure that people aren't running a temperature in as the same way you do when you go into other venues, like the BBC, for example. Brian. Yeah, yeah, okay. C C Craig, what do, you, what, do you, what do you make of the, the fan zone and the, the COVID preparations and, and you know, COVID readiness generally? Well, Brian, I'm, I'm no big football fan, but I am going into the swing of the Euros. It's obviously been 23 years. And I think Scotland, out of, out of COVID, is, is keen for a bit of uh, celebration. Um, but on the issue of, of fan zones and the Scottish government's treatment uh, of, of COVID restrictions more generally, I think there is less to celebrate at, at the moment. I mean, I think, you know, should, should we be allowing 3,000 people to go in in a socially distanced environment and enjoy football and have a drink, listen to some music? I think we're we're probably there or or thereabouts, but the issue then is it throws into sharp relief the fact that you can go along with two thousand nine hundred and ninety nine strangers and watch a football match. But if your little boy or little girl is playing in rugby tots, you can't go along to your public uh, your local public park and, and and watch that. So I think what it's what it's doing is just showing how as we're emerging out of COVID, there are a huge number of in inconsistencies, and the government's got to come forward now with kind of a much clearer set of vision and values about how we emerge out of COVID and what we can do and what we can't do safely. And obviously in relation to uh, the, the fan zones, I wouldn't want to see it being driven by sponsorship. It should be driven by science. But if the science says that it's fine, I think Alex has come up with some really sound uh, ideas there. And if, if, if we can do it safely, enjoy the sport safely, have a few bevies, as you said, Brian, but without it getting overly euphoric, then I think... That's that's great, but I think what it what it will show is that there are these inconsistencies that now really have to be tackled by the by the Scottish government. I've got to ask: if you say you're not a football fan, presumably your team got relegated or something like that. There's never just never been a football fan. My dad tried to get me to follow football and play golf, and he failed in both miserably. I'm afraid. Dear, oh dear, neither football nor golf, but both 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 sports which were banned by the the pre-union Scottish Parliament. But there we go. Fiona Hislop, it's it. I mean, Nicholas Sturges is admitting it's. There are anomalies, but it's a bit more than that, isn't it? You know, it's up to 6,000 a day and you're not allowed other mass gatherings. It seems a bit strange. So the UEFA Euro Championships have been planned for years and the fan zone has actually been planned for months. The problem is in January and February, can you anticipate where we're going to be in terms of different yeah. variants, etc.? And part of, part of this, and it's really important for the hospitality and events industry, was to ensure that we can deliver events on uh, the, the road, the process to freeing up uh, opportunities for other areas of events to come back. So, so this it's like a practice run, you're saying? It's like a dry run? It's, it's a oh, semi-final before the final? There's a gateway process for major events. Scotland is a perfect stage for major events. It's part of our, you know, it's, it's part of our offer internationally. And so, therefore, public health uh, uh, officials have been working very hard to ensure that what is put forward is um, COVID safe. Now, one of the problems, and I just say to Alex Cole Hamilton on the temperature yeah. guide, um, everybody has been to places where you get that. Uh, if you look at the examples, for example, previously, uh, the pilots on rugby at uh, Murrayfield, uh, when they tested about 1,000 people coming in and out, it's, it's what's called ingress and egress coming out and going in. And you can see uh -huh. that with the games themselves. And if you hold people up 
that's where the biggest risks are. And it's ah, okay. So okay, right. I, 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 I see, I see. I see. So the risks have been thrown up at the last minute. Yeah. And every single um, country and capital that are, you know, are, and, and capital across the world, and, and obviously Glasgow as well, are hosting the Euros, and they also have fan zones. And okay. they're all... I see, I see scepticism from, from others. I'm going to bring in... Uh, David, you're looking very, very equivocal uh, uh, about this. Bring in Craig and Alex in a moment. David. Yeah, I was just... Um, Fiona Hislop, you were uh, sort of involved in ensuring Scotland kept its um, host um, city status um, sort of earlier this year. I was just wondering if UEFA had made that sort of that fan zone a requirement of that. You said other cities around, the, around yeah, Europe. the uh, operation with UEFA, they had... Certain issues, for example, the percentage of the Hamden that could be used or any stadium. In fact, we are, I think, this the lowest. Uh, Ireland was having to review theirs in the last few weeks, and I'm no longer a government minister, so I've not been involved in this for, for you know, certainly some weeks. Uh, uh, it was always the case that if the health considerations, and remember a lot of these decisions pre the Indian variant, the, the Delta variant, uh, so that's why you know uh, it's been constantly assessed. But, you know, Glasgow Green is enormous. It's far bigger, for example, than the Trafalgar Square fan zone. Aye, but they're not covering the whole of Glasgow Green, are they? They're, they're in a confined area, part of Glasgow Green. Yeah, I saw what everybody else did, you know, the, the, the coverage last night, BBC, when they were putting up the trestle table. That is likely equivalent of what's happening with outside. But yeah. I think in terms of outside hospitality and beer gardens, etc., I think the issue is, do we want to try and get events back in Scotland and the events um, advisory group that has been advising government has been quite clear that if we can try and get some of the big major events back, it will help get all the events back. Thanks, for that. Thanks for that. Alec Cole Hamilton, you were looking extremely sceptical. Uh, well, it just feels like the Scottish government are adopting an element of a hit and hope approach that you know, will just just it'll be all right on the night. And uh, Fiona Hislop um, uh, is right to raise the issues of um, people gathering to get their ta- temperature taken, but she's also in the same breath said that Glasgow Green is one of the biggest open air spaces in. Glasgow in the city, perhaps in, in any metropolitan area of Scotland, in which case you could box clever around taking people's temperature. But if, OK, if we accept that that's not a solution, can I ask Fiona Hislop um, whether, why the government won't now send out lateral flow kits to every family? I, 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 don't, I don't know if they, if, if they are. I think they've already said people should be taking lateral flow tests that are going there. It's a responsible thing to do. We've got through COVID over this last 15 months because people have been taking individual responsibility for themselves yeah. and, and, and actually they have been doing that. Forgive me, Fiona. Craig, Craig Hoy, what do you, what do you make of what yeah, you're I doing? Think, you know, there's, there's, a te- there's a technical issue as to how you run one of these events s- safely. And I think, you know, that's why you need you need scientists on tap for that. But eventually the, the decision about how we come out of COVID will be part science, part political. And if you can concede that it's fine to have 3,000 people in one venue, enjoying sport, enjoying alcohol, then you've got to turn around and say, what's what's wrong with soft, soft play? What's wrong with rugby tots? What's wrong uh, with the person who wants to have their wedding in bigger, which is currently in um, uh, you know uh, level two, um, even if all the guests are coming from a, from from level one? And what's, I think what's wrong with a cruise liner docking ab- at Greenock ab- to, to, ab- to enjoy the delights and, of Clyde? And I think I think as as, as time progresses, the, the public's respect for the rules. Is going to be challenged if the rules seem contradictory. And I think when you've got a cruise liner that can't dock at Greenock, but it could go south of the border, load everybody onto a bus and bring them over the border, then people are going to look at that and say, we now need to be pragmatic. We know that people have, uh, there's a high concentration 
uh, of vaccine uh, amongst uh, those who are most vulnerable. If we can have 3,000 people enjoying football and a drink, then I think we've got to look at some of these other anomalous situations and deal with them quite quickly, Fiona. But you have to be pragmatic, and the same people who are complaining about the fan zone, and the same people are saying, oh, yes, we must have all these people from different countries coming in um, off that cruise line. Even though they've had vaccines, we know uh, you can still transmit the vaccine. So, yes, you've got to be pragmatic, but there is no blueprint for this. This is a global pandemic. Yeah. And in terms of the kind of rollout, uh, people are talking about consistencies. If we were to be as consistent with every single sector in a sort of pre-planned way, the danger is nothing would be opening up. It's the impact collectively. So, so, so is this is this is this a little bit is this a little bit of a sweetie, a little bit of a lollipop to the population? Okay, you've suffered, but you know at least we're going to make the the, the Euro twenty twenties a bleak twenty one a bit of a laugh. I, I think I think that's a characterization that I don't agree with. I, I think this is very serious. I think it's serious health wise. I think it's serious for football, and I also think it's serious for the events industry. And it's the events industry that probably in this whole debate has not been taken, um, I think, as, as central as people might be. They were the, the you know, the, they are the, the, going to be the, the, the last probably to open up. We've got okay. the festival coming back in part. We've got, we're trying to get as many events and, and different activity as we can. Uh, but also in terms of the, that comparison and different, different aspects, we are not going to have some kind of wonderful consistency because this we're having to, um, you know, we're going to have consistency when we can. Alec Cole Hamilton first, Alec Cole Hamilton, then Craig, then David. Well, thank you, Brian. Consistency matters. It matters so much because people find it so hard to understand where we are on our journey out of lockdown. Brian, you mentioned this is a sweetie to the population. It might be a sweetie to the population, but it's thin gruel to Glasgow's hospitality industry. Let's, exactly. remember, let's remember that Glasgow has been under lockdown since October when they entered a circuit breaker lockdown for two weeks that didn't end until last week. And then finally, you've got publicans who have been spending thousands of pounds to make their establishment safe, who aren't even allowed to advertise that they are showing the games of the championship, who are watching on in trepidation and anxiety that the fan zone and Hamden are going to lead to a spike in COVID cases that will shut their city down again. And I have a lot of sympathy for them. Consistency matters. Fiona. So would you cancel Would you cancel the fan zone? Would you cancel no, that, I, that element? Would you cancel the, the 12 Alec, Alec. Cancel it. Would you cancel it? No, I've, I've asked you, your government, to send everybody who you've got addresses for who are registered to come to the fans. Okay, yeah, we've, we've, we've heard that, but, but, but you know, Craig Hoy, then David. Craig, then David. I just I just think, Fiona, it's very, very difficult to, to sit there and say, as, as you are, that it's fine to have the fan zone when publicans around Glasgow are going to be sitting there operating in what are still pretty severe restrictions. And actually, those people that need our help most of all are those publicans who, as Alex said, have suffered immensely uh, since, since October and how, now need uh, our, our support and the support of the government and, to get them and there up, are up and running again. There's some people yeah. in Glasgow who want to go to pubs, and the level two who are now in for Glasgow means that those pubs can be open and they can be serving alcohol inside. And I think most people in Glasgow, the, the, other than the 3,000, will be wanting to go to their local and to go back to the pub. And I would encourage everybody in Glasgow to support the local hospitality uh, sector by going there. And you're not going to have fans going there to the fans on every single day of that period, the same people. So therefore, uh, the opportunity throughout that month for people to support the local hospitality sector is there. Thanks, David. I think Fiona Hislop made an interesting point earlier that if we do want these big events um, to come back, we need to trial them and see how they work. But um, the health secretary's justification for, for not 
being able to have mandatory tests was over sort of ethical issues and sort of equalities issues. So that does kind of raise that question mark whether when we do have these big scale events back, whether we will indeed be able to sort of offer these these tests or vaccine passports as a method of, of ensuring it's safe. Hang, hang on, Fiona. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll then, Fiona. There is a crucial and important distinction here. The Liberal Democrats are passionately against the idea of vaccine passports. We don't believe that anybody should retain your biometric health data other than your doctor and yourself. Um, we're talking about a snapshot of somebody's health on a particular day to, to test whether they're fit and well to come into a particular event. That, that information should then be immediately discarded. I think these two things are very, very dif- uh, different. And the health secretary was wrong. And I think it's slightly disingenuous to suggest that uh, testing somebody on the day was the same as carrying a biometric COVID ID card. Um, can I can I just say, I actually, the reason I jumped in was probably in the exact same point as, as Alex. Right, Martin, forgive me, yeah, go on. Because you, have to, you must differentiate between the debate about vaccine passports and that about testing. But test, testing is only good on the day that you have that test. And that is why everybody's been encouraged but, but, to order the, the, the test. But, but Fiona, I mean, I accept you. You make this point about inconsistency. You make this point about oh, there has to be, we have to deal with individual circumstances. But I've lost count of the number of people I've heard on 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 the wireless and elsewhere when they're asked about a, a particular um, constraint in their area they say oh well but it seemed it's all very well for 3000 to go to the the fan zone in glasgow green it's being used again and again and again by people who have a grievance against one aspect of the covid restrictions they're using this to counter the aspect that bothers them in other words it's it's a it's a whether it's right or wrong whether it's whether it's sensible or not in public relations term it's been it's been a calamity because because it is giving people an excuse to say, well, if they can do that, I'll do what I like uh, in in the area where I face constraint. So so compliance and uh, self regulation behaviour is hugely important as we know in COVID going forward. And um, I do think that uh, explaining the importance of the uh, events aspect might have actually helped explain some of this. Uh, but I do think in terms of that issue of people comparing this and that. It's always been the case. We saw that actually this time last summer when we were starting to unwind the restrictions. Unless everybody's unwinding at the same time, people point to either other parts of the country or other sectors saying, but if they can do that, why can't we do this? Yes. And, we, and we know that from the last we know that from last year. So I actually do agree with you that it's actually a lot of this is about the messaging and how, and how we do this. Uh, but I do think that you know Glasgow Arena is 80,000 capacity, there's 3,000 going to be there at any one time. They will be spread out. They are being encouraged to have a lateral protest, as everybody should be doing on a regular basis. But, 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 shouldn't, um, shouldn't, but it have been, shouldn't it have been mandatory rather than being encouraged well, to have a we, test? We encouraged. Testing, you know, in, in terms of the general public, and again, this is the issue, I think it comes back to the point of Alex Hamilton about um, forcing people to do things. And part of the COVID rules and compliance has also got to be about respecting rights um, and they can be challenged, and those rights have already been challenged. For example, again, it's a very, very, Craig, you know, Craig, it's a really important. I like them, Craig. This is about a snapshot on a day is not an invasion of your civil liberties. I mean, I I attended BBC debate night two weeks ago. They took my temperature in the BBC before I went into the studio, and I was completely fine with that. They're not going to record that. It's not going to follow me anywhere. And they um, took your temperature and afterwards. It had gone through the roof as a consequence <laughs> of a furious and debate. There wouldn't have been a queue. They wouldn't have let me into the studio if I'd refused to have that. And that's the point. And similarly, you wouldn't be allowed onto a plane at the moment in some going to some yeah. countries. 
without a negative COVID test. It's not a passport. It's not something that retains your health data. It's just a check to make sure you're fit and well. But like if you you would mandate a driver who you thought was under the influence to take a breathalyzer. Let's bring in Craig Hoy. Craig, you'd be very patient. Everybody should be doing it. Craig, and Craig. Craig. Can, as of now, test yourselves. Fiona's, Fiona's, Fiona's talking there about rights and, and, and civil liberties, but I think the... The SNP government here starting to lose their, their grip and their sense of perspective on how we come out of COVID. I mean, we, we heard yesterday that they're preparing before the recess to ram through an extension to uh, COVID, their COVID powers um, uh, when when, the, when those powers don't lapse until until September. I think that the longer this goes on, the more we have to debate people's rights, civil liberties, and and their responsibilities, Fiona. And I think again, we see this week. You know, there's. There, there isn't clarity in terms of, of, of what we can do and what we can't do and the rules and the regulations. And you're about to try and roll forward with sweeping powers and railroad them through uh, well before those, those powers stop. I think there is almost an argument now for saying, look, we've got a high penetration of the vaccine. The country is emerging out of it. The economy isn't in, in as bad a state as some people predicted it might be. There's almost the, the, the opportunity now to sort of pause for breath and have some degree of national debate about how we emerge from COVID, what our rights and responsibilities are, and where the uh, and where the government should hold control over us, or, or where do we move to a point where we have some degree of self-control, where we police our own behaviour in, in, in relation to COVID. Craig, thanks. I'm, I'm going to move on shortly, but Fiona, Fiona on that point. Fiona. I actually have some sympathy with the approach Craig is taking there, but we do not have time if we are facing a third wave. And we know that we have to act and act quickly. And some of that action will require regulations. Does it need proper scrutiny and to make sure that we can have um, the, the, the relevant committees and other parliament, it will be a, if it's in a full parliament session to do that. I, I think we should. And if, if, if Craig wants to meet in, uh, over July and August to do that as a parliament, then if that's what the parliament Well, actually, if on, on an issue of that magnitude, I'd be very happy to, to meet uh, both parliament to sit in, in July or August, because don't forget, if you were to publish that bill now, we could all scrutinise it. We could have an, uh, some degree of debate around it and come back and look at those powers at the situation we find ourselves in. in well, I'm, I'm, I'm not government, so I'm, I'm on the basis that I'd be in... You're, you're, all, you're all coming back in the summer. I'm going to draw, that, draw this one to a close. I'll just, just say one thing. When I was in Westminster as a journalist, I used to run the annual sweep on who would be the first person to demand the recall of Parliament. Um, Tam DL was always excluded each year. Let, let, me, let me move you on from that. Thank you very much for your, your comments on that. A very lively discussion. Indeed, let me move you on to the arrival of uh, US President Joe Biden. He's having a, a talks with the... The Prime Minister, but he's he's in the the and of course uh, later meeting uh, Her Majesty the Queen. But he, he's in in Britain partly for the the G7 summit. Uh, we're talking about a new Atlantic Charter. But the one issue that it keeps arising again in the relations between the the US and the UK is is Northern Ireland is the 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 business of the the Good Friday oblique Belfast Agreement. And President Biden is arriving with a warning saying that the, the discussions, the row that's broken out over Brexit trade between the mainland Great Britain and Northern Ireland must not be, he says, must not jeopardise the peace process, the, the, the stability of the peace process in Northern Ireland. It, the, the row, incredibly, is like an episode, as I said, of, of Yes Minister. It's the Euro sausage. It's whether we're allowed to trans, trans, transfer um, sausages and meat, etc., from Great Britain, or many of it through, through Scotland, through, through Cairn Ryan, Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland is part of the, the EU rules and Great Britain, of course, is now not. Fiona, what, what, do, you, what do you make of this? Is, is it a Brexit problem bubbling up again or do you see it in a different light? It's the same problem that has always been there. And that is 
I think the UK government's lack of understanding of the impact that this would have um, and that they didn't realise, appreciate or decided that they, they would get through this. Uh, they didn't understand what they were signing up to is what they say, but they absolutely did. Um, don't underestimate the power of the US is uh, um, influence, but also their concern about the Northern Ireland uh, situation. It's not the first time the US has um, uh, made statements about the uh, situation in Northern Ireland in relation to, to Brexit. Uh, so this is consistent from the uh, particular Biden administration. Uh, and they are right to be concerned because this is not just some latest squeeze about some sausage, which is obviously that that, that kind of Euro sausage debate is clearly a spin uh, from those that want to try and trivialise this. Uh, actually, the issue is far deeper and stronger. And I, I am deeply concerned. And I think the uh, UK government has to start treating this with the seriousness it uh, really requires. And their reputation internationally uh, by of not following through with agreements that they have set out and then said deciding to renege on that. Interesting point. Yeah, it's a real diplomatic problem for them in supporting international relations going forward. Thank you very much. I'll bring in the other members of the panel in a second. But David, just just bring us up to speed on the the the, the row. It's it's about it's about trade access, isn't it, between mainland Britain and and Northern Ireland? But but the the point of view that Hislop was making there is a is a good one. That the European Union officials are saying. Look, I'm sorry, and all that sort of thing. But you signed up to this. You now need to implement it. Uh, bring us up to speed on the, on the, the controversy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as part of the withdrawal agreement, the UK government agreed to this Northern Ireland Protocol, which essentially put a border in the Irish Sea to protect the peace process in in um, in, our, in the island of Ireland. But then there was a six month grace period when it came into effect at the start of the year. But that runs out at the end of the month. It, nothing has been done. It seems to have just been ignored by the UK government that this is a, a huge issue. And there were, there were talks this week, no breakthrough, and the EU can see are getting increasingly frustrated. And that this is where the sort of threat of the trade war and the sausages getting impacted, it, that's where this has come about. It's, it's yeah. a serious issue, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not going, not being resolved. Uh, Alec, Alec Cole-Hamilton, I, I guess you would say, as Fiona Hislop's party is able to say, uh, you were dealt. We told you so. Well, I take no joy in that at all, Brian. I think this is diplomacy at its absolute worst. I want to make the pun about it being at brat worst, but I don't think there's any laughing matter about it at all. I mean, we what we get is this sort of blame slinging and briefing wars, and that uh-huh. would be nothing to help the people caught in the in the middle of all of this. And um, and continual insistence on unilateral action will just not really get us anywhere. Um, the issues of implementation of the protocol are only going to be solved if the UK and the EU strip out the heat and, and focus on the light and get around the table. And there needs to be a wholesale sort of change in focus on this um, with the aim of reaching alignment, particularly on sanitary and phytosanitary uh, standards, as well as yes. securing that all crucial veterinary agreement. Um, without which, I, I just think, you know, this is just the first in, in a, I think, a long line of skirmishes to come. Not just over the um, Irish border, but over um, shipping, customs, uh, tariffs, the rest of it, um, and and this is all a morass that we could see coming. Craig, Craig Hoy, the, the the Prime Minister has said that, that, that there is no border, as as he puts it, down the the Irish Sea. That is something that that, that faces ideological opposition from conservatives and particularly from those of, of, of who are unionists, conservatives and and unionists. You know the, the full name. 
of the party. But what did he think he was signing up to when he when he reached the the trade agreement? This 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 is it. This this now requires to be implemented, does it not? I think there is there is obviously a legitimate concern there. I think um, what is clear is that it needs revisiting, and I think this is going to be uh, the the future in terms of the way in which we deal with not just trade with the EU, but trade around the world. And I think um, the EU and the Americans are actually very good at this kind of um, sort of tariff uh, tit for tat. Um, but we need to go in and recognise that we are now going to be trading uh, partners and sovereign uh, equals. Yeah, but hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. You say it needs to be revisited, but you, you, it's not. It's not revisiting something. This was a, this was a deal. A deal was struck, and it was hailed as being a glorious deal by the Prime Minister, now he's got to implement it and he doesn't like the terms. Well, he signed up to the terms. But it's, it's we are where we are, and I'm, I'm not going to go and kind of revisit um, how the protocol was, was developed. I mean, it was obviously um, one of those situations whereby we had to get the, get the deal through, the, the, the clock was ticking, but it's quite clear that it's not, it's, it's not working. And you know, we're at a point, and it isn't just about you know the great old British bang. I mean, we're talking potentially um, about medicine manufacturers yes. not, not supplying into uh, Northern Ireland. So this this is serious. And it's to not time, it, it's, it's not, it, it's not it, it isn't working. It was never going to work, and that's the point. And and that and that's the the, the critical issue here. And in terms of trying to resolve this, it's you know the the fact it could be risking. Um, a situation in Northern Ireland where you know the, the peace that has, has has been achieved is remarkable in, more, in modern day, and for the UK government not to understand the sensitivities, the complexities of that trade deal, and what it would mean, and the implications of it, is is a, is extremely serious. The Craig, Craig, Craig Hoy, do you Craig Hoy, do you think the Prime Minister signed up to this to protect the terms of the Belfast Good Friday? agreement, but didn't think it would have implications, didn't think he would have to do anything about the, quotes border down the Irish Sea? The honest answer is, I, I, I don't know. And I think actually the intervention today um, of, of the US, don't forget, I mean, going back to the days of Senator George Mitchell, the, you know, the US are vested in the Northern Ireland peace process. I don't think this puts the peace process in, in grave or, or, or present danger. But what I think it does show is that now there is a need for um, uh, a sense of, of understanding, um, both from the UK perspective and the EU perspective, that what was signed in, in I'm assuming, good faith on both sides, in practice, isn't, isn't working. And if it's not working for the people of Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland or the rest of the UK, or potentially from uh, the, uh, the EU's point of view, what, what about, it, has to, about, it has to be resolved. But what I about Fiona Hislop's point? We, you, you, I mean, we can't have that sort of thing. If you sign up to a deal, it wasn't just reluctantly agreed. Boris Johnson trumpeted it as being a good deal for Britain and, for, and for, within that for the people of Northern Ireland. You can't now say it's not working. It hasn't been tried. They, they haven't, he hasn't tried to this, implement it. He's just simply this, disavowing what he signed up to, isn't he? This, 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 this was always going to be an organic process. Perhaps we have come to this position earlier than, than we may otherwise have, have, have found. Um, but I think that we've, we've now got to say to the EU that in a spirit of cooperation as two uh, sovereign trading uh, uh, blocks, that, that we need to come back and, and resolve this. You can't see them, but the sceptical grins are a mile wide. Alex, I, I can't, I can't, I can't see them. You should see Alex and Fiona. The EU won't take you seriously, nor will they trust this again in terms of signing up to an agreement they thought was signed, sealed and delivered on Christmas Eve 
and we're walking away saying, actually, this doesn't work for us, guys. Um, we, we'd like to have another go. I mean, th there are definite things that can be done immediately, but we need to strip the tension out of it. And can I say this? That we, I, I think you underplay the seriousness of the jeopardy in which the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement is yeah. in currently. We see sustained, ramping tensions, sectarian tensions on the streets of Belfast. We are just weeks away from marching. And tensions within the governing DUP as well. And tensions in, in the governing DUP. Northern Ireland could well be on the edge of a tinderbox or at the edge of a precipice back into violence. And they are looking, I mean, the, the more agitating factions within Northern Ireland um, life, whether that's uh, sectarian groups or others, are waiting for a, a catalyst, something like this, to justify acts that the rest of us would find her point. And, and an important yeah. aspect is how the Northern Ireland politicians themselves have been treated, uh, both in, uh, in terms of that administration, uh, from uh, particularly from a unionist point of view, in, term, in terms of trying and find a resolution, and you know, are they secure and, and do they have a strong political leadership within Northern Ireland? Obviously there's been some leadership changes just now to, to, to try and steer a way through this, uh, to help support the position of Northern Ireland. And unfortunately, and I've, I've, I've previously met with Northern Ireland ministers, they are as frustrated as many others are because they know that they were sold apart. Okay, history really matters in Northern Ireland. That is undoubtedly the case. But history matters in, in Scotland as well. And there's been, moving on to another topic, there's been a, a think tank report suggesting that the way history is taught in Scotland is too much towards they they would see the the independence option and not enough about the the United Kingdom. They say there's there's a, a an anti imperialist tone in some of the way that the history is taught. There's been support for that perspective from uh, Conservative MP Andrew Bowie. He says it, it, it could if 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 history is the way history is taught is changed, it could be part of a unionist fight back against the threat of independence. Let's bring in Craig. Craig, what do you make of this? Do, are you unhappy about the way history is taught under? Uh, the, the the SNP government. I think I think there are concerns. I can't remember the name of the pamphlet, but from off the top of my head, I think it was the road to the Scottish Parliament. Um, and I think where you get um, a partial or revisionist account of even something like how we got to the position where we had a Scottish Parliament, I think Donald Dew, you know, only got one name check in that. I think you 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 have you have to be concerned. Um, there is always this issue, and I think this is maybe one of the issues why the BBC, your old. Um, uh, employer Brian always gets a bit of a knocking, which is that you know opposition parties always think that um, uh, the uh, the media are, are against them, and I think maybe there was always a view that, that um, the governments of the day thought that modern studies teachers were always against them because they always ended up with treating sort of critical uh, critical pupils. But um, my my view, but I, I I watched what Andrew uh, Bowie said in relation to that. I think we should have uh, the ability to have a kind of full and frank discussion about um, Scottish history. British history and the role and do you, of empire. Do you think it's, I mean, the, the, you mentioned the road to the Scottish Parliament. The road to the Scottish Parliament is actually the title of a splendid book written by, well, myself, actually, but there we are. Okay. Available, <laughs> yeah, so, well, that, that was available, available remainder in too. one or two remaining good, good bookshops. But, but yeah. the, seriously, on, on this, do you think that the, 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 uh, the, the, the curriculum for history in, in Scotland's schools is, is too, quote, nationalist? I, I've had some concerns about the way in which I've, particularly um, during the during the, the elections, occasionally when you speak to kids who, let's just say, aren't um, um, necessarily um, uh, nationalists, and they say that just the way in which 
the information percolates through in, 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 in school means that other voices are kind of crowded, crowded out. Now, I'm not going to turn around and say that there's any kind of institutional bias in the Scottish education system. Mm. Um, but if, but if, you, if, if you can point to examples where history is not being approached in a way that is open, accessible and covers some of perhaps the, the good and the bad uh, uh, aspects of, of, of British history, um, then, then obviously that's something that I would be concerned about. But if we end up with a kind of brave heart approach to teaching history in the schools, I think that would be to, con- to the concern of, of everyone, not just people from my political persuasion, but, but across the political divide. Fiona, what do you make of that? Well, the last uh, people that should be saying what should be in uh, history curriculum and, uh, is politicians, and that's <laughs> what drives me. Um, I gave up uh, history in the second year at school because of the content that I personally felt about. But I ended up getting a degree in economic history. And I think history is important. It gives you critical thinking skills to challenge things. And I think uh, you referred to a think tank that was established by a former member of the Jackson Society. And those of you who know that American history and uh, the right wing uh, positioning of that think tank, then therefore you can see there's a colour um, aspect of where that might be. And that, that's the point with critical thinkers. There is no national curriculum in Scotland. Uh, and indeed, uh, history content should be established by the experts in history teaching. And that is certainly what I, I did formally as a, an education secretary. And I think it's very dangerous indeed for any politician uh, to determine uh, contents of uh, curriculum. I think the, 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 think, the think tank paper says they, they, they want a, a morally attractive story about Britain and they say that too many Scottish nationalists, and this is a quote, equate Britain with empire and empire with evil. And, you know, by, by contrast, saying possible independence is part of a progressive arc of, of history. You, 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 you wouldn't see that as being the way that that history is is taught in. Do you think it may be taught wrongly in the past? Was was it too? Yeah, well, much I, I, that's why we should never judge things on the way. You know, I was always, it was the British kings and queens that kind of turned me off when I was a team in terms of looking at history. But I love my economic history, um, I, and, and and I think it's a subject that's really really important. And I encourage all my children to find your history when they can. It's, well, you, 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 didn't fancy, you didn't fancy the list of the Tudors and Stuarts, did you? Was it was it too too well, much? Well, I, I read a lot about them now in literature. Funny enough, in, in the, uh, fact, you know, in, in terms of uh, fiction, I quite, like, I quite like that period. But in terms of, um, we have to learn things in context. Do we in Scotland generally and uh, know enough about empire, the good, the bad, and different? You know, the, the, the Scots administered much of the empire. We can't take a, a judgmental view as in terms of what our contribution is. Uh, but in terms of uh, understanding where did the money come from and uh, uh-huh. built the wealth of our nation, the fact that a quarter of the, the, the world's ships were built in the Clyde in uh, the period 1914, these things are a matter in context. And, and I think having an understanding of that is really important. It's when you start to get interpretation of an evaluation of morally, that word morally, yes. making a mental view is the aspect, because the whole point is to have that critical thinking. Uh, if history is fact, so history, history is always written by the winners, remember. <laughs> And so, therefore, there's always an interpretation of that. And I, and, and I have to think that, you know, our, uh, I, I get worried when suddenly, you know, I'm part of either modern history or turn into history at some point in terms of the, the timescales of this. But I, I do think that we have to trust the professionalism of the teaching uh, staff and also ensure that those experts that inform that from our history departments oh. in our universities, that's where you should go. Politicians. Uh, uh, Alec, Alec, Hamill, uh, Alec, are you an amateur historian, model or otherwise? I love history. Um, I'm not overly worried by this debate, I have to say. I think that the battle to save the Union 
of which I am part, um, will not be won and lost in our history classrooms. I think it's a, an interesting sideshow. I, I welcome the contribution to the debate. That said, I, I do think we need to be teaching more about empire and about Britain's British history in our classrooms, but that's not necessarily a jingoistic attitude. That, yeah. I think, is an important reflection of the fact that, particularly around things like the Black Lives Matter movement, that actually there is a historic culpability um, in Britain, in British roles overseas, um, and that's why the Liberal Democrats would, would start a museum of empire to that end, to, to recognise that culpability. That said, for all the darkness that exists in our week, such light exists as well, and the kinder transport, and Biafra, and the images of famine that led to a philanthropy that lasted decades. So Britain isn't a bad place, and, and I I want to, you know, win the case for it by pointing to things like the, the vaccine programme, the furlough um, saving this country's workforce in our darkest hours in living memory because of the broad shoulders of the UK economy. That's how we win the case. And, and in my in my constituency, we had the first uh, Scottish Black uh, Member of Parliament, Peter McLaughlin, who probably most people wouldn't realise that. Should in West Lothian, particularly perhaps elsewhere, but certainly in West Lothian, should pupils in West Lothian know that in Linlithgow, the Linlithgow Shire you know, constituency, um, returned uh, uh, the first black Scottish MP. I think they should. Let's bring and it, bring it. And make it learning in context is really important. Make it relevant. And that's why we don't have a national curriculum because each part can, Edinburgh can think differently than the south of Scotland in terms of you know, understanding their local history and, and understanding that, have a worldview. But um, learning about international histories is important about as learning. Uh, but but there, isn't, there isn't a neutrality about history, is there, Fiona? I mean, I recall chairing. Oh. In, in 2007, uh, debates about the, the 300th anniversary of the of the Act of Union, and these were not dry, dull uh, glances back over three centuries of history. They they were they were hugely energetic um, discussions, and and you know occasionally had to be uh, tamed quite a bit because the the, the arguments over whether the 1707 Act uh, Treaties and an Act of Union uh, were, were sensible or not was still a, a pertinent matter. It still was 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 mattering today. So E.H. Carr's What is History is a slim uh, volume I recommend to everybody as to uh, you know, how history is an interpretation of different aspects. There are facts and there are dates, etc. But yes. things can be used in different ways. And if you, if you look, we were talking about Northern Ireland uh, uh, last week, but um, if you look at Ireland, they've got a decade of commemoration where they have quite, uh, I think, carefully and diplomatically steered a recognition of, yes. of a decade where different people had strong views about yes. different views. But they have done it in a way that probably surprised themselves, uh, and, uh, from, from what I hear, in helping people understand the local context, but also wider context, but looking at it from different angles and different perspectives. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of huge fan of Irish Irish literature, um, Joyce and Yeats in particular. And I recall it again in 2016. That was the the, the centenary of the 1916 Easter Rising, mm -hmm. and I know for certainty that within the you know, Irish government circles and the, and the Irish educational circles, they were concerned that that centenary would be grabbed by or, or, or exalted by one element only of, of the arguments within contemporary Irish politics. So it really didn't matter. David, I, I've kept you out so far, but I, I, it, it wasn't by intention. It was just, uh, well, I got, I got interested in what I was discussing. But David, please come in. What, what, what's, what's your take on this? What, what's your own experience as well? Uh, so I think it's quite obvious that politicians and think tanks shouldn't be trying to meddle in curriculum um, of any sort. but. Um, I have to declare an interest. I went to a, uh, an English school where um, my history of British history was a lot to do with the empire and the horrors that came with that. Um, and I think it's 
fair that we don't sanitize some of these things. The last few months and um, there's been sort of an awakening and a, more of a awareness of some of the past yeah. uncomfortable truths that we've 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 had as part of the British Empire and the legacy that comes with that. And I think making sure that both sides of that that the empire are an imperial force that Britain was yeah. it is important that, that young people are aware of that. Were, were you taught about Scotland at all in in a historical context? No, no, not at all. Apart from my Scottish parents kept me informed as they could, but. Um, ah. So, so they, they, they counteracted and countermanded, perhaps, what you were being told at school? They tried anyway, yeah. <laughs> Final <laughs> word from, from, from each then. Where, where, where do you see, does this, uh, are, we, are, we, are they getting fussed about nothing, Alec Cole Hamilton, or, or is it something we have to be, be aware of? You have to be, watch what is taught in schools as well. Well, Brian, history isn't nothing. You know, those who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important that we do have a dynamic and comprehensive curriculum in our classrooms, but that shouldn't be designed by politicians. And like I said, you know, the, the battle for independence or the future of otherwise, yeah, not going to be won or lost in our history classrooms. It's going to be lost, won and lost over arguments on currency, on um, building bridges across our family of nations, fighting common cause with those uh, people who we have endured with the last 300 years. It won't be like Craig, Craig, you retain some concerns, obviously. Oh, I think I, I, I agree with, with Alex, but just don't forget how uh, emotive and persuasive history can be. And I think where yes. you have myths that then enter into uh, sort of dialogue about history that, and where, where there should be facts, then I think, and particularly if that then gets muddled into contemporary political debate, and I think that then I think we should be a bit concerned or that contemporary debate then spills into the classroom for any reason. And obviously what we don't really want to see are our myths being uh, propagated as, as fact and, and as our nation's history. Thanks for that. Uh, Fiona Hislop, final word for yourself. So if history uh, teaches anything, it is to question motives. And I think the motives for uh, this uh, intervention is highly <sighs> political. And that's what I think is inappropriate. Fiona Hislop, Craig Hoy, Alec Cole Hamilton and my colleague David Ball, thank you very much indeed. Thanks to all of you for joining us in this, this tremendous discussion, really excellent. Uh, a great episode of the of the podcast. Thanks to all who have managed to listen in whatever um, format it, it, it's, it's available. I don't understand these things, but there are others who do. From me, Brian Taylor, good living. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code HERALDNEW2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details.